and welcome to ESG Out Loud, the podcast for ESG clarity. I am Natalie Gilmway, Editor-in-Chief at MA Financial Media. For this episode, I was delighted to chat with Todd Court, who is Faculty Director of Yale University's Sustainability Programme. We talked about all of the outcomes from COP28, the big announcements, where Todd thought that the announcements went far enough and where they didn't go far enough at all. We also talked about some of the challenges for asset managers next year, so standardisation in global policies and his ESG wish list for 2024. Let's get to it. And I am joined today by Todd Court, Faculty Director of Yale University's Sustainability Programme. Thank you so much for your time today, Todd. Where are you um, dialing in from? I'm dialing in from New Haven, Connecticut. Fantastic. Great to have you on ESG Out Loud. Can you tell us a bit about um, what you're doing right now and your background? Yeah, and and thank you for having me. Um, so I work at Yale University, uh, all in corporate sustainability and sustainable finance. Um, I sit in the School of Management, uh, where I'm a senior lecturer, and I'm also the faculty director for the Center for Business Environment and also for the Yale Initiative on Sustainable Finance. So all things corporate and finance around ESG and sustainability. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure you'll have some um, really interesting insights for our listeners. So let's talk about COP28. Um, It ended last week. The global stock take final draft had some interesting wording around, I think they, they opted for transitioning away from fossil fuels rather than phase out or phase down. Were you pleased with that outcome? Yeah, there's a lot of of angst put into that language around phase down, phase out, uh, or the the ending language of transitioning away from. I think as a as a conversation um, that that compromise was probably as good as we could have expected uh, coming out of the the COP twenty eight. Um, I think the 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 fundamental problem that we all have with this is that the timing of a transition away is going to be slower than the impacts that we see from climate change. So we'll get there in the end, but we're going to go slower than the impacts that we're going to see. And that's why we saw, you know, island nations talking about signing our own death warrant is because of the timing that that language implies. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that it didn't go far enough um, or do you think, with the sort of various voices in the room, that was the sort of best case scenario. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the voices around the world, right? There's, um, uh, that's, I think that's probably as good as I would have expected. It's actually a little better than I expected uh, for those conversations to happen, but definitely not good enough. Um, I think there, there are a number of really good things that did come out of that conversation. And remember that COP28 is about bringing issues to the table and trying to sort through what we're willing to do and, and commit to uh, that discussion. So, you know, naming fossil fuels was a bit monumental 
I mean, strange to say that, but it's a bit monumental that it is even discussed uh, at a COP. Um, there are you know, great conversations around deforestation and its link to climate change, around uh, food systems and, their, <clears throat> and that is uh, linked to climate change. So there were some really good parts of the conversation, I think, and, and it was a valuable uh, end um, result as uh, because of those those aspects that, which, that were discussed. Okay, great. And what were some other announcements that stood out for you in terms of was um, a surprise or interesting? You look forward to seeing them being played out. So yeah, on the on the good side, um, the the recommitment to like the loss and damage fund, I, I think that was a good thing. Although it probably didn't commit enough money um, for the impacts, it was sorry, not probably it definitely did not commit enough money. Um, I thought the uh, uh, the the conversations around methane in oil and gas were positive, um, and there's a I think there's a clear commitment to it to reduce methane emissions. However, didn't get to a net zero commitment um, on methane. Um, I think that the uh, one of my biggest disappointments uh, or, or lack of an announcement um, was I know the financial industry was there, market players were there, but it's like they're absent from this agreement. Um, they, their language, the language of, of capital markets is not in this agreement. And that to me was probably the biggest disappointment is that the conversation and the end result was all about concessional capital, capital from governments, uh, donations. Um, for, you know, and, and the, the integration of development banks. Um, and even though we know that you know, financial markets were there and need to be part of the solution, they really weren't present in the final language. Yeah, that's interesting because people I spoke to at the start um, of COP were saying we're waiting for the governments to start stepping up because we're, we're hearing a lot from financial institutions. But yes, I guess... Um, that's that's where we need to see more effort and look out for some more details, I guess, as well. Um, and we, we, we were going into this COP with obviously people were talking about a lack of progress from previous COPs. Um, is that something that still needs to be worked on or built built upon? Um, after like uh, in hindsight, after this COP has come to an end. Yeah, it, it's it's such a common refrain, and it's very true that we 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 have great conversations every few years, not necessarily every COP, um, but then the outcome fizzles. It, it drops off, you know, after a year or two of, of of commitment or even less. And I think one of the core reasons for that is that things happen in the world. You know, conflicts happen, uh, inflation happens, disasters happen. There are lots of priorities that governments have to deal with. And this this comes back to it is so important that capital markets and financial players are part of the solution because they have this you know, one you know thing on their mind, which is to maximize profitability. And if we are to make that a reality, they won't lose focus. You know, the markets don't lose focus on making money. Um, so I think that's a big reason that we we see these these fizzles is that instead of focusing on the policies and the regulations that will incentivize and structure that the the response of financial markets, um, we focus on how much money 
governments are going to donate to the cause. Uh, we focus on, you know, development bank efforts, et cetera. Um, and those are those are always going to be part of many, many, many priorities for government. Um, so I think that's part of the reason that we see this kind of lack of follow through year after year after year. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there was a lot of talk as well about um private market commitment versus public market commitment. Um, and we're focused on getting the private private companies up to speed. Um, do you have any comments around that? Do you think there's effort and willing on that side? Yeah, there, there are some small movements. Um, so you mentioned one already, which is we have, uh, as part of the agreement, uh, we are expecting the company or countries will develop their national determined contributions and a strategy to achieve them in a year and a half to two years. Um, so bef uh, before the, the the second COP from now. Um, and that presumably will have a great deal of structural commitments around how we move markets in, in this direction towards alleviating climate change, mitigating and adapting to climate change. But that is very much a, we expect it to happen, not we figured it out. <laughs> so that was one. Um, the other one that is, I thought was a little bit more tailored and, and a bit more interesting was um, there was an agreement to form a task force on net zero policy coming out of the, the COP28. Um, so this task force is specifically going to look at how we will share best practice on the regulations that countries can put into place to incentivize markets. Um, research and tech, technical support around that. Um, identifying opportunities in the regulatory frameworks that countries are adopting, and then helping to share that with other countries. And the entire goal there is to figure out what regulations will, will incentivize markets to move forward. And I thought that was a, a that was a good um, outcome given the, the the conversation that was happening. They obviously couldn't say every country does this, but we will set up a task force to help countries uh, that are moving in that direction. I thought that was a, a, a good, um, positive move forward. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because, again, at the start of COP, we had um, the sort of uh, representatives that I spoke to that are on the ground. They also said um, we want to see more global alignment in policy. So that's obviously a step in that direction. We have ISS Phoenix coming into kicking in next year as well. So obviously it's in the name international. Do you think we'll see more of that coming together? I mean, it's very tricky of countries operate in different ways. But do you think we need to see this in particular on climate? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I, there's two things I think that we'll see. So one will be a standardization of some aspects of the information, which is really important. What I mean by that is um, regulators, particularly financial regulators, will increasingly standardize the data that they expect from companies and from funds, uh, particularly around climate change. So greenhouse gas emissions, climate risk, the financial implications of climate risk, et cetera. So I think we're going to see the standardization of that kind of information, and that will help to move markets much more quickly because we'll be able to understand the financial implications of climate change much better. The other thing that's going to happen is almost the opposite, which is that there's going to be this wave of big data, like huge you know, satellite-driven data, social media data that is going to be non-standard, unstandardized, unpriced um and this will be for you know the hedge funds um the the active asset managers and they're going to 
look for that non-standardized information to get a, to try and outperform the market. So I think we'll see better pricing within the market of climate risk, but we'll also see this this explosion of unpriced information in the market around climate risk. That's really interesting. And what would you say is a key action point that an uh, asset managers need to take after COP28 or generally stepping up their climate reporting or um, focus on climate risk? Ironically, I think that the COP28 agreement kind of allowed asset managers for the time being um, to, to, to not move towards more climate risk uh, assessment in their portfolio. And the reason I say that is because if you look at something like Article 8 uh, in the EU for under the SFDR, um, it, it asks fund managers to look at exposure to ESG aspects. Um, this COP essentially allowed you know, fossil fuels to be part of the solution, a transition of fossil fuels to be part of the solution, which means that I could, in theory, reference the COP28 as part of my Article 8 disclosure and say, my fund is a buy, so you know, it considers exposure through the transition under this COP28 agreement, um, and therefore we're investing in fossil fuels, albeit presumably ones that are, are transitioning. Um, so I don't think the COP28 will necessarily move the needle for asset managers in the short term, but in the in the medium term, as these as countries start to come up with their plans, I think we'll see better alignment of regulations that will incentivize those funds to move towards more climate friendly portfolios. So it's kind of it's a good and a bad uh, scenario. Okay, yeah. What about the end investors? So over the past year or two, we've seen um, investors perhaps um, retracting from ESG funds because they are just looking for to protect portfolios in any way they can. Um, do you think COP twenty eight will play any part in a move back, or do you think we will see a swing back regardless? I'm hoping we do. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure how much COP28 will influence that. I think there are bigger forces at play uh, that are moving that needle. But on the, I'm, I am actually optimistic that that needle is already moving back towards um, the, towards ESG integrated funds. Um, actually, I didn't actually see a great movement away in the first place. What I saw was a relabeling of funds um, instead of calling it ESG or sustainability. Um, they just talked about, you know, risk integration, but the same risks were still considered as part of the investment portfolio. So I, I think we're already seeing that swing back um, and the ESG and, and, and the explicit integration of those factors is, is growing again. Um, I'm just not sure that COP will change that too much, but definitely the if these these regulations come into play over the next two, three years, we'll see an enormous swing. Uh, if countries kind of maintain that commitment that came out of COP28. Yeah, no, I agree. There wasn't much in COP28 to incentivize the uh, end investor, I guess. But um, yeah, it's encouraging to hear that you do think that we will um, see more of a move or uh, focus on ESG funds um, in the future. And what do you think um, asset managers need to be focused on uh, over the next year in terms of climate risk? So there's there's a lot on asset managers' plates right now uh, with the EU regulations coming into force. Um, there's a great deal of work over the next year uh, just to 
sort out the financial disclosures around ESG and climate change. So I think there's a lot on the plates already uh, for for asset managers um, without adding anything else. But strategically, um, I think there's there's a great deal of money out there uh, to to figure out what are the climate risks that are within my fiduciary duty, meaning within my time horizon, within my discount rate that I can apply. There's a there's a fair amount of climate risk that I can take on and try to mediate or mitigate within my my portfolio. So beyond just the disclosure, which is about standardizing information, I think there's going to be a great deal of activity around what is allowable under my fiduciary duty to accept in terms of risk mitigation. Um, and that conversation is is complicated. It's nuanced. It's very dependent on regulations. Here in the U.S., it's also dependent on litigation. Um, but I think that's that's going to be a, a real big effort over the next year as, as asset managers try to figure that out. Yeah, just to quickly on um, litigation, and um, I was thinking about greenwashing, and that obviously that's um, been a topic that's talked about a lot in Europe and the U.S. Um, this year. Do you think um, that there's going to be more firms perhaps called out or do you think that they understand now what is expected of them and are therefore complying? This, this, is, this is a double-edged sword, actually. The regulation provides um, cover uh, for, not for greenwashing, it provides, provides definition that an asset manager can say, I abide by the regulatory definition of this, and therefore, you know, I am I am compliant. And that can alleviate a lot of concerns of greenwashing, even if the compliance is not perfect, right? Even if the compliance is limited in its scope, and there might be other claims out there uh, by the asset manager that are not necessarily, you know, uh, perfectly aligned with their, with their goal of ESG mitigation. Um, so the, the regulation can clarify, but it can also open the door for, you know, for, for additional greenwashing claims um, that, that fly under that, that radar, under that cover of compliance. Um, on the other hand, we're, we're actually getting really smart about greenwashing nowadays. Um, it used to be that you know, we're trying to kind of see through this window of disclosure, um, but now we we already know we know the indicators of greenwashing. We know how to see greenwashing for an asset manager or for a company. It's things like you know does does your claim align with your with your corporate strategy? But what we're we're getting better at now is is measuring that alignment. So not just looking at the you know the words on the page, but measuring the alignment between your corporate strategy um, and uh, and the claims that you're making in your disclosure. There are a few other factors as well. And so we're using, you know, we're using machine learning to figure out those alignments. We're looking at sentiment analysis of, of speeches from CEOs. Um, we're getting really good at looking at that alignment of why the company would do these things and making sure that those, those priorities are aligned. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on in that space, but it's a very long answer of, uh, or, or way of saying that I think that we will see less greenwashing in the future because we're getting much more transparent because of regulation, because of huge data sets, because of the, the ability of artificial intelligence, et cetera. I think greenwashing is going to be much more difficult in the future. 
Well, that's really, really encouraging. And yeah, it shows as well that we are becoming more educated and sophisticated in understanding um, what the investors are in terms of understanding what exactly is in their portfolios. So that's great. Um, my final question for you is, um, what would be the one thing you'd like to see in um, 2024 in the world of sustainability and ESG? Uh, what would be on your wish list? Oh, that's a long wish list. Um, <laughs> I think just to stick with the theme of COP28 and looking into next year, um, I think the the biggest thing that we need to see coming out of this COP is movement towards those nationally determined contribution plans. Um, and then in those plans, I would very much like to see some coordination uh, and, and collaboration for the regulations that will go to private capital uh, in markets. So I really want to see this, that governments are creating the incentive structures. Um, they're reducing the hurdles to help private capital move that money towards a more climate safe world. Um, those structural elements is what I'm hoping for 2024. Because I think that once we, re we reduce the barriers to private capital flow, um, that's going to be the, the, mo the most sustainable answer to climate change um, compared to you know, public spending, um, compared to other policy uh, initiatives. Um, so I think that's the key is, is remove those barriers through regulation uh, so, so the capital will move more freely within private markets. Fantastic. That sounds fab. Well, thank you very much um, for your time, Todd. It was great um, speaking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, it was great to have Todd on the podcast, and I'm sure we will be inviting him back soon with all of those interesting insights. Um, look out for more episodes in 2024 and also some very exciting news about the future of ESG Clarity. Thank you. Thank you.